Hi everyone, this is the Shopstool Podcast, episode 9, season 3. As always, I'm going to start by introducing my two co-hosts. Joey, how are you? I'm good, Robin. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. And Brian, how's it going? I'm great, Matt. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm very good. And my name is Robin. Welcome to the show, everybody. So tonight we're talking to a designer and maker who specializes in residential and public furniture, which is not something I think we've ever said on the show before. Um, the pieces are made pr predominantly from steel and are described as fun, which personally I think is a refreshing change of pace from the traditional timber furniture on a white background. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Tom Morton. How are you this evening? Hey, Robin. Good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank, thanks for coming on. Um, as, as I said um, a second ago, it's this is some this is the, a type of maker that we haven't had on the show before. You know, we've traditionally done, I'd say, majority woodworkers. So this is going to be mm. quite interesting, and and um, I'm quite interested to to hear a bit about your process. So, with that in mind, a good place to start is, I guess, tell everyone who's listening what you do and it'd be interesting to hear how you got to this point yeah um so uh as you said i've uh been for the last couple of few years been uh working with uh metal as a primary material for building furniture um my background's in architecture uh so i, I studied architecture um here in melbourne did my undergrad and postgrad at rmit um, and, uh, so it was a, it was a big course and I think you get exposed to a lot of different things in it, um, that aren't necessarily just architecture and I think furniture was one of those things for me. Um, I didn't do a great deal of furniture design and making when I was at university, but it was something that sort of came about as a, an interest for me after, after graduating. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of, I graduated around 2017 and finished uni and went straight to working for a big office in the city. And I think I kind of burnt myself out with architecture a little bit. Um, you, you can name, you can name drop Thomas. We've got, I think we've got a few architects that listen to the show. So which, which firm was it that you worked for? <laughs> uh, well, it was, um, I, I went straight from RMIT and started working for Woods Baggett. Um, yeah. Pretty big office, really, like... Uh, Do you know them, Brian? Yeah, yeah, they're massive. Mm. Right. I think they might even have a Sydney office these days as well. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, probably over 100 people in their Melbourne office, so doing pretty big projects. Um, and it wasn't really... It, it wasn't a bad place, actually, and, and the people there were nice. And But I think I sort of just go in straight from uni into this kind of big office environment, doing that kind of grind in front of the computer every day, just doing documentation work on Revit or CAD uh, and sort of nothing but kind of uh, needed a bit of a scene change. And uh, <laughs> mm. um, yeah, I think making was something I grew up doing a lot with um, my family, with my dad and my grandfather. Um, mm. awesome. And it's something that I, I think started to really miss a lot uh, after finishing uni. Um, you kind of don't really realise you miss that stuff until you're really missing it. And then <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. it's really refreshing when you get back into it. Um, um, so I think not that, I'd, not that I had sort of extensive training or experience in metalwork, um, 
I think it was more just being exposed to it at a young age and doing stuff with that and my grandfather, like, um, I was sort of shown how to use a welder or play around with the forge, um, really at primary school age. And, um, and I think although I wasn't uh, creating anything too mind-blowing back then, it's sort of, it gets you really familiar with things. It gets you kind of yeah. comfortable with stuff, um, especially when you're playing with it at that age. Like, you kind of look at it later in life and it doesn't scare you, you know, the idea of picking up a welder or trying to learn how to use it's, a lathe or something. It's interesting. Most people have, through their father or grandfather, like a lot of the people we talk to have some um, similar story with timber and woodwork type of thing. Mm. And it seems um, like a pretty fringe thing to have in your family a forge in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> did, yeah. Like what was your dad or grandfather into to, to have that kind of equipment on hand? Uh, well, dad, well, dad's approach with it all was um, partially from a professional standpoint. He grew up doing, he was a fitter and turner by trade. Um, but it was a lot more than just a job to him. I think his sort of main hobby at home um, mm. was metalwork, and that kind of went from everything from yeah. fitting and turning to forge, uh, using your forge bellows to just welding. And um, uh, I think Dad really loved that sort of historical side of metalwork um, as well as sort of his trade of, you know, using the lathe and the milling machines. He loved that mm. old kind of craft of um, the forging and casting and the sort of more traditional That's side awesome. of metalwork. That's your sort of thing, isn't it, Trey? You've always been, you've always talked about trying to hold on to that art instead of just turning yeah. turning the, the craft into a processing factory, you, you know, hold on to that, those, those old skills. It's, you're right, and I, I, mean, I seem stupid, but just kind of this revelation now that um, metalworking is a really old <laughs> kind of technology. Right. I mean, obviously, it's been around <laughs> as long as anything, um, but I've never really thought of it until right now as having like unique kind of traditional um, mm. techniques and things like that, and it must have just as much... Uh, kind of um what's the word um yeah i don't know like for want of a better word like trade secrets as as woodwork mm. there must be the same kind of level of um kind of know-how that gets passed passed around mm. yeah no definitely with the older stuff i mean because there's a lot of um yeah like you said almost trade secrets with working with your hands um when you don't have sophisticated technology at disposal, you've really got to get mm. creative, don't you? <laughs> mm. But um, yeah, you're right. And I think, um, and I think in a weird way, there's like an aesthetic that comes along with that kind of work as well, which the you know, the, the 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 kind of um, style of that stuff's um, obviously it is what it is, but um, I guess there's the evolution of being able to work with metals changed that kind of idea of design in metal furniture's changed significantly as well um, <clears throat> through the 20th century obviously um, but yeah 
So I, I think that's a, a big part in it. Like, I don't know about with woodwork, I suppose there's a lot of people out there that in like producing fairly contemporary pieces with um, fairly traditional methods still. Um, yeah, it does happen. Um, so maybe you could um, run through what your workshop is looking like um, because I've got no idea what a modern metal yeah. workshop looks like and how you go about producing furniture and what I imagine as a black dusty hole <laughs> <laughs> you, you, I, I know what you're picturing he's got one of those waistcoats yeah. on <laughs> and he's been down the mine all day hammering away <laughs> yeah. cool. that's what it all looks like isn't it yeah. <laughs> it, it does look like that some days yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's um my workshop's probably um uh my workshop's probably not a great example of um cutting edge uh metal yeah. technology um I suppose the way I've kind of grown my workshop is in some ways through necessity of um, design. Um, so a, a lot of the tools that I use to produce my furniture are um, jigs and tools that I've made myself um, from metal as well. Um, right. So there are... Obviously, you use a lot of all your standard stuff, your welders and grinders and um, linishes. But uh, when it comes to the furniture stuff, it's uh, a lot of my designs have some pretty weird curves in them. And um, <clears throat> I uh, played around with sort of off-the-shelf equipment or, you know, commercially available equipment for doing this and uh, found myself running into barriers with just what, it could do um, it with a, a lot of uh, bending and bending jigs and bending equipment that you can buy. Like they're good for uh, single applications and sort of doing like if you want to just pump out a bunch of ninety degree bends, yeah. then you know right. there's good jigs out there to do that. But if you're looking to do a weird S that slowly shallows off and then doubles back on itself and then does a weird <laughs> little wiggle in between that. Um, <laughs> It can be a little bit hard to do with just off-the-shelf products. So um, I've spent a bit of time, yeah, just trying to build jigs and uh, uh, little bending rigs to uh, execute those designs, really. And there's weeks where I sometimes put as much work into the jigs as I do the furniture itself. <laughs> Absolutely. So you yeah, you worked pretty... out that, like, cold steel bending jigs just weren't, going to work for you so you heat to bend eh? is that your no method? i do cold bend um you do cold bend. the vast majority of my stuff is just cold bent um right yeah and uh it was more the logistics of how the jigs that you buy are actually laid out uh, one of the things i struck early was that a lot of my furniture pieces have i use a lot of flat bar steel and yep. i kind of uh, bend and roll and um curve these things back on itself and something I found with a lot of the jigs that you buy is the jig itself ends up clashing with the job. Yeah. Mm. Um, so you end up um, getting two or three bends into a job and then realising you can't go any further because the pin <laughs> that bent, bends the job's fouling with the bit of metal that's hanging out the end. Um, <laughs> so I had to kind of come up with this system that where nothing was in the way of the job at all. It's sort of this funny floating mechanism where everything works from above and um 
you can basically just send a medal any direction you like and it's uh and it, and it's and it's fine <laughs> that's pretty cool i think it's a really good way to work that rather than just limiting yourself to the jig to find in your work that you've kind of come up with fairly solid ideas about using ribbons and then not limiting yourself to the traditional way of producing them mm. that you've created the jigs so it hasn't limited your work it's it's really neat um I, i've always so i do i do a bit of steel work as well as timber work and the and I'll find that I might not do welding for three or four months and then I'll come to it and the first couple of days will be slow. I MIG weld, um, but the first couple of days will be slow until I get my eye back into it. Mm. But the thing that always interests me about metalworking is I felt the barriers to entry are lower than woodwork. Mm. I think to do basic really? metalworking, yeah, to do basic metalworking, the setup costs are far, far mm. lower and the yeah. footprint of workshop that you need is way smaller. Hmm. Like in terms of setting yeah. up a workbench, a MIG welder, angle grinders, like talking maybe f four or five grand would get you started. Mm. Whereas to really get you started in woodwork is going to cost you, well, Robin, how, how much more? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't don't tell don't tell wife. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. so but, funny. Um, it's so funny you said it though, because as someone who's who's never done metalwork, I've I've watched people weld a handful of times at, at, at most to me it looks like a terrifying thing to get into woodworking you see a big spark of electricity like <laughs> molten metal flying everywhere but you are literally mm. melting metal with electricity <laughs> when i put my timber through a planer i know it's it's just some knives cutting away to, to me it's You're spinning at a thousand rpms at your exactly. face <laughs> fair enough but there just seems to be this as again as someone who's never done this alchemy mm. this this mystery mm. around metalwork then from a cost point of view maybe the 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 entry is is quite low but just from a skill perspective it's just it's just another world yeah i think you're right like i think that's um it's it's definitely more daunting the idea of it it's sort of like what i was saying before about just being exposed to that stuff as a kid um you know like i when i started the workshop i i started it here at the house um in ascot vale and um i've got three other housemates sometimes four um and you know i started up the metal workshop in our garage in the backyard and i think it's it was probably a bit far out for some of my housemates at the beginning like <laughs> like this idea of firing up a welder and melting metal Mad and <laughs> grind, grinding with sparks flying around like it was a really they got used to it <laughs> but um it was a weird thing at, for the, at the start for them i think and um like and it is like i mean yeah welders are uh are, i suppose they're accessible and easy things to get hold of now but you know they're, they're, mm. they are i guess in some respects pretty extreme bit of equipment like Mm. You don't want to just melt yeah. metal casually. Like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> angle grinders are the big thing. Like I still cannot get my oh. head around it. They will sell yeah. an angle grinder to anybody that walks into Bonnings. Yeah. Mm. Oh <laughs> yeah. god. I, yeah. Yeah. I have bad dreams about that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, um, I've seen enough accidents happen on online that I'm like, Jesus Christ! There's people using these for the first time ever and just cutting something out it, in their shed oh with god. no instruction. It's the, only, it's the only tool that I've had a 
near accident with. Near death experience. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm not going to blow it out of proportion, um, <laughs> but it scared the shit out of me and yeah. really made me question. Using, you know, I see these these yeah. guys doing steel work when they're building houses, and they're using it on a horizontal <laughs> plane, cutting a piece of steel <laughs> next their to their face, right and <laughs> they're, they're, they're probably fully in control. So I'm not I'm not knocking them, but yeah, yeah. I look at that and I just think, well, if I can buy an angle grinder, I should be able to buy a gun because it's, <laughs> it's on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, you can, you can take the boy out of South Africa, huh? <laughs> yeah. you're gonna go throw an angle grinder and an antelope <laughs> so so talking us through your setup tom you've, you've got a forge you migwell mel migweld or tigweld or both well most of the welding i actually do on the uh the small scale furniture is arc welding so just right. sort of stick welding as it's sometimes yep. referred to as um which is not a bad simple setup it's probably uh one of the simpler kind of like if someone was to begin welding it'd probably be a good way to do it with an arc welder it's a little bit less setup involved you're really just kind of buying a small dc uh transformer unit and mm. uh, some welding rods which um like when it comes to welding there's usually a flux involved in some way instead of having to use a gas like TIG or MIG, um, your arc is just, it's all sort of in the stick, in the electrode. Um, the flux is sort of in there, so it's easier and uh, quicker a lot of the time. Um, but it depends on the job you're doing, I suppose. Like, I finish, I grind and finish a lot of the welds that I do. So, um, uh, like, if the welds in a visible or obvious place... I usually won't leave it as a as a raw weld, um, uh-huh. so um, arc's not bad for that for running stuff around and quickly and easily grinding off any excess surface stuff. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, depending on the scale of the job that you're working on as well, like there's a few ways to go at it. Um, mm. Do you do m- much forging? Yeah, we've talked about forging. Do you do much of that in your... Because just looking at the, the products that you're putting out, I would assume that wouldn't be part of your process. No, I okay. haven't really forged any furniture stuff, really. Um, I think I'd like to go back and do a bit more of that with some of the stuff that I'm selling, but um, most of the furniture stuff's cold bent, um, yeah. which... Um, I kind of started off with just because of accessibility. Um, I didn't want to bring heat into the workshop early on. And a sort of year and a half, two years later, I've just kind of continuously adapted these cold bending jigs to do all the jobs for me. And I have I've very rarely needed um, forge kind of stuff to, to execute the designs with furniture. Um, and it's part of the way I design them mm. as well. I suppose I'm actually designing with that in mind when I'm creating mm. pieces. Um, I'm sort of thinking yeah. thinking about how does this get made while I'm actually drawing it or yeah. designing it. Like, um, That's interesting. I'm talking about the design process. Um, what's, who are your sort of major influences? Oh, um, 
a lot of architects, I suppose. Um, yeah. <laughs> I suppose, uh, yeah, a lot of architects, as you probably know, um, do have done furniture through history as well. I suppose there's a bit of that classic thing that any architect that's worth anything is supposed to at least design a chair at some point in their life. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> a really uncomfortable chair. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which is why I think my early stuff was so uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> right of passage. Because I was kind of coming at it from this uh, very architectural standpoint. Like, mm-hmm. um, like the inspiration behind using a lot of this uh, flat bar steel, like flat, flat bar mild steel is kind of like my bread and butter for what I use. And um, that, that kind of stemmed from an interest in the... the I guess that vernacular of the wrought iron in, in mm-hmm. as, a, as an architectural ornament. Um, yep. And how, that's, how that sort of language of what is very heavy in the Australian suburbs um, yeah. could, is sort of translated into a, maybe a more contemporary uh, idea. In it's funny you say that. That's that's immediately what I thought of when I when I saw your work was like it felt very Australian to me, <laughs> um, and obviously as a non-Australian, hmm. well, yeah, citizenship test done. But as a non-Australian who's lived here for a while, I instantly recognised Australian culture, but a, a, mm. a reimagining of it. Like I think you can see bits of even kind of Reg Mombasa and that kind of, it's a playful sort of thing, but mm. it's definitely, it feels modern and mm. and fun. Yeah, Reg is definitely, I'm definitely a big Reg Mombasa fan. Um, and I suppose uh, Howard Arkley's work was um, mm-hmm. something that came into a lot as well, that very sort of, um, especially with the colours sometimes, that kind of neon pop um, uh, airbrush stuff that he had going. Um and I, th- I think the painting, the actual painting of these artists influences a lot as well. Um, like in a lot of my early work, I would um, hand brush these enamel line, enamel paint lines along all of the flat bar. Um, wow, right. So it was sort of this, uh, to give it this ribbon effect, um, but it was a very scrappy line that I would paint on there. And I think okay. with the with the early pieces, it was to kind of draw the eye away from the mistakes I'd made. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a bit of an optical illusion. But, Misdirection. Yeah. <laughs> but I got better at making stuff and I just kept the lines. So I just sort of... <laughs> yeah. Talking about the design, we've, we talked earlier about your... From an, a historic perspective, you... you you like all of that old world, old worldy, <clears throat> excuse me, type of look. The stuff that you're doing here is very modern. It's a it's a big s- step away from that. Is do you feel like what you're doing with with these pieces? And just on a side note, to everyone listening, you have to go check out um, Tom's stuff to to understand what I'm talking about with all these curves. Do you feel like? The, that's the direction that you wanted to go with this originally, or is that sort of just evolved? Is is that something that you've you've fallen into along the way? Um, well, it was something that evolved from that more uh, 
traditional approach to design and making, I think. Um, <clears throat> like I mentioned that I was sort of interested in this sort of wrought iron of suburb, of, uh, of wrought iron of sort of architectural ornamentation sense. Um, it's, it's kind of nice, but if you ever pay attention to the wrought iron and fences and gates of Melbourne, I mean, you're really only kind of dealing with two or three different forms like <laughs> you've got an S scroll, like a yeah. C scroll, um, some twists. There's very classical order based. Um, <clears throat> and really the only thing that's played with there is proportion and scale. Um, mm, I so see what you're saying, yeah. I just thought, well, there's a lot of potential to that mode of building like this broad iron could be taken in a lot of directions why is it only being used in this one singular way everywhere um so i was trying to just expand on the language of what those existing um classical ways of designing with wrought iron were um the, the making techniques are probably not too far um separated from from, you know, how it's traditionally done, I suppose, but I'm just kind of thinking about uh, different outcomes. Um, and I, th I think the other side of it was that the flat bar lended itself to this kind of um, continuousness that, um, like, the, the matchbook chair that I did um, was sort of my closest attempt so far at trying to make a single piece of furniture out of like a piece of furniture out of a single length of a uh, flat bar right. steel. Um, awesome. So it's um, obviously cheating a little bit because the amount of metal in that's probably about 40 metres worth of steel and you can't buy a 40 metre length of flat bar. <laughs> now that would make a cool piece. That, that's what yeah. you need to start in the description. <laughs> One day it's still a goal. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I, but that came through in the design is this sort of like looping back on itself and trying to catch the end of it. Where does it start? Where does it stop? Um, uh, I like that kind of homogenous nature to furniture. Like. When I think of um, furniture, I typically I'll just naturally think of wooden objects and they appear to me softer and warm feeling, I suppose, if I was going to put a feeling to it and then when I think of steel I typically wouldn't think of furniture and I would think they're cold and hard which they probably are both but in a different sense um, so do you find it is there any challenge in marketing what you're making uh, conv convincing people that it is better or equal or different enough or comfortable enough whatever comfortable maybe something that people have yeah, an issue with but I, I mm. should be the same as wood, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, like, obviously it is down to the individual and what they like, but, um, mm. um, I, yeah, I think that's in part why sort of in the last six months or so I've uh, sort of started to focus a bit more on the public realm of furniture, um, mm -hmm. the sort of street furniture and park related stuff um because it's a material that obviously lends itself well to that um not that timber doesn't yeah. but um you know yeah. um i don't think there's any the the expectations are met with steel when it comes to a, a street bench um whereas yeah. 
you know, it's kind of different for your sofa at home or something. Yeah, um, it's something you perch yourself on for 10 minutes or something rather than spend a couple of hours on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, uh, like, I'm surprised sometimes. Like, I had a family um, purchase a set of the little blind stools that I do, which is just a nice basic metal flat top stool um there's not too much going on with it in terms of ergonomics or comfort but um they bought a set for their dining table and you know they just Mm -hmm. sit on them and eat dinner each night and um you know a lot of people would hate that but um they they really loved it it's It's a really fun piece i reckon that's would that would you consider that to be one of your signature pieces the blind stool yeah yeah it's probably yeah. done the best of anything i've uh like in terms yep. of selling um i've probably sold the most of that of anything i've really done and um yep. yeah it seems to be received pretty well it's yep. are you doing runs of these things or made to order uh generally made to order i kind of just something like with the blind with the stools uh i sort of just try and churn out as many of those like can on a fairly consistent basis um right and oh look i might get a little bit slack and not have any and then get an order and have to make a bunch but um Mm -hmm. yeah i try and make them fairly consistently um they sell pretty well do you, you handle all the sales directly or do you do you have any anyone that stocks them uh just some online uh shops like uh there's a, there's an online the biggest one is probably the Maker's Market, which is like an Instagram based uh, Melbourne store. Um, mm-hmm. She stocks them, so I sell them to her, and then she sells them on through the shop. Like I, I sell them to yeah. her at like a slightly less wholesale price, I guess. And um, yeah, yeah. Um, which yeah, got to do if you're going to sell in slightly bigger numbers, I guess. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But, um, mm. yeah, I like to try and keep... Oh, what I'll usually do is just get a bunch to the stage of, like, steelwork finished, and then if someone comes along and they want some obscure colour or some weird finish, um, that can just sort of be the last stage I do to it. Um, yeah. If they want it powder-coated or zinc-plated or whatever it is. Um, I was going to ask about finishes. Uh, my first thought would be that you sand everything off to get powder coated, but it sounds like you are hand finishing pieces as well somehow. What are uh, you using? Mm, these days, I'm generally powder coating. I'm sending off. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, for for the residential stuff, I basically just get it um, with a, a zinc primer and. Mm-hmm. Uh, a powder coat finish um, with the street furniture. The, doing delving into this realm of public furnitures posed a whole new range of problems. Yeah, um, I was going to ask about this. <laughs> so, when you're saying a zinc, a zinc primer, is it a hot dip? Is that the process, or how do they do the zinc primer? Uh, so, with the stuff that's got to be slightly less durable, like indoor pieces and that, I can just do a zinc primer. Um, and then powder coat over the top and it'll be fine. Okay. Um, for public pieces that are outdoors and getting kicked and uh, yeah. dented and all of the rest of it, um, yeah, either um, 
Yeah, either a proper zinc electroplate first mm-hmm. or a hot dip gal. Um, yep. The hot dip gal was a little bit trickier with the powder coat. You don't normally get as a pristine finish. Hot, yeah, hot yeah. dip gal's got a little bit more stuff in it. Um, Scale on it and stuff. Eh? Yeah, and they've usually got to bake off more impurities and stuff after it's done. Um, the, the, perfect, the perfect thing is really a zinc electroplate and then a powder coat or paint finish for the public furniture. It just means you're not going to have corrosive issues um, uh, when working with mild steel because mild steel obviously wants to rust. Yeah, yeah. Just waiting for the first opportunity. Is a, is a fun one as well. Like if you're ever, if anyone out there is ever welding steel tube <laughs> and air can't escape from it, if you put it in to hot dip galve, it will explode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, that's a fun one. So you've always got to make sure there's yeah. uh, kind of drain. Or is that why they always drill holes on the yeah. pipes and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. It turns into a pipe bomb basically. Yeah. yeah, it could be not so fun around molten whatever that stuff is. <laughs> yeah, with, with the the public furniture stuff, is there a lot of a lot of regulations that you've got to adhere to, or is that more something that you've just figured out along the way? Uh it was something that I've um, figured out along the way a little bit, but it's something I've been aware of for a while. Um, uh, there are design guidelines and regulations sort of surrounding these things. Um, they're not particularly complex, uh, and a lot of it's fairly common sense, I suppose. Uh, I did a bit of work. After I left Woods doing the architecture stuff, I kind of went off and just did drafting and documentation work for a lot of different random people that mostly weren't architects. Um, and... One of them was a, a, a guy named Ben Gilbert, uh, who's a sculptor and playground designer based up in Yakandanda. Um, and it, I became aware of a lot of the design issues and guidelines and regulations around public and especially playground stuff when I was yeah. doing a bit of work for him. Um, uh a lot of it's kind of just funny stuff like, you know, don't have gaps that kids can get their heads stuck in. Um, <laughs> just don't have... No spears, yeah. no yeah. knives. Yeah, it's a lot of it's stupidly <laughs> no obvious spears. stuff. Like, just yeah. don't have sharp, pointy objects. Just don't. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, but I think a lot of the way I was designing stuff kind of lent itself to that anyway. It was sort of very rounded, safe stuff mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, that I think generally could be applied to the public realm pretty well. Uh, yeah. It's, it seems like a pretty, uh, I, I want to say, untapped kind of market where um, I feel like there would be presumably your client is like your local council mm-hmm. and somehow you contact them and just like, well, I guess there's a multiple, multiple questions is that, um, do you just contact them and say, Hey, look, I'm designing outdoor furniture and do you need any, anything on your street? Um, and also once that, uh, contact is established, 
it seems like they would be like, yeah, we need like 10,000 of these things for you know, every street corner. Um, is that something like that? Or I mean, how, how do you go about dealing with the council? Yeah, it's a world I'm still unraveling a little bit. Um, mm. The way that is something I've started doing more now is actually just broaching councils about the fact that I offer these things and that um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> they're locally made and, um, you know, councils like that uh, just as much as anything else. Uh, the way of getting into it, it's sort of a weird... I mean... The way I got my first public job, it just kind of landed in my inbox and I just kind of got lucky in that respect. Um, I had someone, I had a lady that was a landscape architect at a Melbourne council just see some of my work and ask me if I wanted to do a piece for a a local park. Um, And then that sort of led on to doing some seats for them. Um, And since then, I've just yeah i suppose more consciously tried to put the work out there for that public realm Mm -hmm. um some of the pieces i've designed for the public realm i haven't actually uh built yet um right (laughs) so um there's uh public stuff's quite big so it's kind of hard to prototype it and just put it away in the corner like a a park (laughs) bench is a big thing or like a some of these big picnic sets like so um it's sort of this weird balance of like testing components and testing all of these parts and going mm, yep okay that makes sense that's going to go together that'll work um and almost just building all of the difficult parts and then the job comes along and you're kind of ready to roll you know what's going to happen um and you can just sort of launch into it and um, from from what you've been involved in so far, are you are you um, do you install these things, or you just kind of mm. hand it over to the council and say, "Here's some bolt holes." <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, have assisted with the installing, but it's something I try and get the council to do. Um, yeah, for a couple of reasons. One, it's just a pain. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's also a uh, slight liability liability issue there as well, I suppose. Um, yeah. uh, I finished a piece sort of recently, which was a bird bath for a park, and um, it was kind of a top-heavy piece, <laughs> I guess you would say. Like, <laughs> you wouldn't push it over easily, but it's got the potential to go over. Um, yeah. And the thing itself was... Is that, the, is that the Williamstown one? Yeah, oh. that was it. Yeah, the blue, that blue bird bath piece. Um, and the piece itself, you know, you could drop off a three-story building and it's not going to break. But I thought the, the, the bit that's going to keep me up at night is the anchoring of this. So yeah. I just did all my due diligence there. I just, you know, gave, like, we just um, got the local engineer to... Um, do a 15 minute sketch for $800 and say <laughs> use these four chem set bolts to this depth and <laughs> then I got the install team to do it so that was all kind of um, kosher there <laughs> Sweet. yeah, yeah. This, this kind of drilled into you in architecture actually that <clears throat> sort of just um, liability yeah. like, <laughs> like who's responsible for this like once it's done like 
Um, that's yeah. sort of the architect way of thinking, which I think is healthy. Right? means yeah, things absolutely. are done right at the end of the day. <laughs> absolutely. Talking about architecture, and I assume this is where you picked up a lot of your skills, the design of your website is fascinating, in my opinion. <laughs> the way you've essentially developed a little mini 3D modeled city with all oh. of your pieces, mm. which I just think is, is such a great idea. So again, to everyone listening, if you check out Tom's website, you've got the, the two areas. You've got your residential and your public space. In the residential area, you know, yeah, it looks like you've created a bit of a room to put in. But that outdoor space, when I first looked at it, I thought, am I looking at the piece or am I looking at it? And it took me a second to figure out that it was a, <laughs> all 3D rendered. Even down to what's on the floor, the grass. There's some 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 uh, bottles and cans, which I just thought was an interesting <laughs> nod to uh, Australia. Just lying next to the, on yeah. the floor, <laughs> long neck in the corner. <laughs> how long did it take you to put that together? Uh well, the um, the building of the scene didn't take too long, actually. I sort of. Uh, I pieced the scene together uh, probably just in like a day, a day or so actually. Um, but uh, I sort of did that because I was kind of coming up with this range of pieces and I was sort of rendering them all in different ways and finding I wasn't getting consistency in the communication of the pieces. Like I wanted people to kind of see this as a bit of a range of stuff. So I thought oh, I'll just build a home for them and um, put them all in the same scene to kind of share. Um, <clears throat> and uh, something that I kind of... Uh, There's digital artists that I've uh, been enjoying lately, uh, this girl from Sydney, um, Sirwa Atafa is her name, and she does a lot of digital rendering artwork. Um, and... I, I kind of wanted the pieces to come across a little bit like an artwork in some sense, like with architecture, you know, these renders are generally just communication tools and mm. they're often quite ugly. Like, um, but I sort of wanted to make these images look a little bit sexier in some way and, and also have a consistency to them as well so it wasn't just sort of <clears throat> random pieces with in random settings and mm. you're looking at like what the there's, hell is this there's totally a bit of Edmund and Corrigan in there as well I think is this <laughs> oh jeez you do have a good eye <laughs> I think it, it just it feels like Did you've created a world for your furniture <laughs> to live in which kind of ties the whole thing together rather than just rendering on a white background it's, it's really nice yeah yeah I did get a little bit bored of the backdrops of like not just other people's stuff, but mine as well. It's sort of the default thing. Just render it in a white void and load it in just space. Sort of, yeah, yeah. It's sort of um, maybe you can even say something about the furniture in the the scene that it's in. Like, yeah. I wonder what that does for uh, potential buyers and their perception when they look at that and they go, "Oh, hang on, that's that's not the piece. That's a that's a generate CG CG." piece mm. from a from a confidence perspective i wonder how that affects them yeah i've often wondered that um yeah mm. 
It's it's a difficult one. Um, I think part of it part of it relies on the seriousness of the image. I think. Um, in the, can you can you convey this thing in um, not too much of a sort of uh, toyish way? I think. Um, mm. And often that's communicating it with harder drawings, like elevations or axon mm-hmm. axos. Or your axos, or, yeah. Yeah, um, they're a good, clear, dis- descriptive tool um, where it's harder to hide things, you know, in a line drawing. Um, but uh, yeah, it's where I wanted to develop a kind of um, a consistency through the style of those renders so that people weren't necessarily looking at them thinking, hmm, the design's all right, but mm, sort of sitting here in this sort of undercooked render that's that's (laughs) not really doing it justice. Um, So I I think that's interesting from an artistic point of view. I think that's how you approach the scene, like we were talking about before. And, um, you know, sticking a a little Pepsi bottle in it or something (laughs) might actually help. (laughs) Presumably all your pieces are handmade one kind of one at a time one off essentially so i imagine if you took 10 pieces you make the same they're not actually all the same and so a render might be a more general overview of what you're going to get but it might not be exactly what you're going to get yeah is that accurate or completely off (laughs) well um I think, yeah, they're definitely handmade and there's quirks to the pieces. Um, but in terms of the design, it's uh, quite accurate. I think they're quite uh, realistic right. portrayals of um, what's on, what's in the render in comparison to what's produced. Um, okay. And I usually kind of do them both at the same time. So um, I kind of make and model on the computer at the same time. So once I've kind of figured out how this piece of flat bar is going to bend between these three right. points, I kind of look at that curve and I go, all right, well, when I'm making it, this is what I've got. Um, so then I kind of take that <clears throat> and translate it into the computer and, and go, all right, well, this is what I'm working with in the workshop. What does this mean uh, in, on the computer? And then sort of... So it's sort of not really exclusively using computer or workshop yep. to design anything. <laughs> both, both at the same time. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, and the fi- I find the more time I spend sitting in front of the computer trying to design something, um, that it never comes out that way in the workshop anyway. Like, you spend a day <laughs> designing something on the computer and in the first hour of building it, you just scrap half the ideas you had and go off on a different <laughs> tangent. <laughs> That is very true. Well, yeah, to everyone listening, head over to to Tom's website. So it's bootlegstudio.net. And yeah, just, just have a look at it. I think it's a it's a fascinating way of presenting work in a very different way, which is is always welcomed. Um, I think that's where we'll leave it for tonight. If we've we've covered a fair bit. Um, with the website in mind, if anyone wants to check out Tom on Instagram they can search bootleg studio as well to find all of his work and um, yeah it's been a great show so I think uh, yeah. let's let's call it there so everyone listening 
Um, if you did enjoy the show, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. It really does help us out. The Shop Store podcast is available on most podcasting apps. Brian and Joey, thanks again for hanging out. And Tom, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Um, yeah, thanks, Tom. No, really, thank you. Really, yeah, really interesting to, to hear a different, uh, a different side of the, the, the makerspace. Yeah. Yeah, no, and um, yeah, thank you guys for all the episodes. It's uh, exposed me to a new world of making and stuff that I wasn't aware of. And um, actually, after you interviewed Jem awesome. from Like Butter, I went down and checked out his workshop in Castlemaine. It's, uh, oh, cool. it's really cool to see that. Yeah, That's cool. The, the community right. that's... And, and Brian and Joey, I'm sure you have the, the same interactions, but the, the community around this podcast is it's growing and it's starting to grow exponentially i'm finding it's it's building momentum Mm -hmm. and it's so funny you say that tom because i've always wondered when those 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 uh, connections are going to start to come back around and when those those people are going to start to interact and meet organically so it's really Mm -hmm. great to hear that 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 has happened we've put two people together that's that's awesome yeah Mm. Yeah. yeah I'm sure there'll be plenty more of it yeah I, I hope so alright everyone so thanks again for listening take care and we will see you in the next episode <laughs> see ya see you guys <laughs>